post-dollar world is coming. So says Ruchir Sharma. In the latest Financial Times, he is the chair of the Rockefeller International. But what says Jeff Snyder, the head of what? The Eurodollar Shadow Monetary System investigative team and special guest Steve Van Meter. Jeff, Steve, we're going to be talking about the dollar as well as where it is. It's rising very highly. What the mainstream says about it. And your article, Jeff, you, you wrote an article about it and you were referencing this Financial Times opinion piece. And let me read it and we'll go from there. Sound good? Absolutely. All right. This is Mr. Sharma. This month, as the dollar surged to levels last seen nearly 20 years ago, analysts invoke the old Tina. There is no alternative argument to predict more gains ahead for the mighty greenback. The dollar has been bolstered by weaknesses of its rivals. The euro has been repeatedly undermined by financial crises, while the renminbi is heavily managed by an authoritarian regime. But what happened two decades ago suggests the dollar is closer to peaking than rallying any further. What a perfect place to make some predictions. <laughs> make some predictions. <laughs> oh, you start that again. I think it's a perfect place to contrast what everybody says and what actually happens, right? Because why would you even be thinking about what happened two decades ago in comparison to today? Because there seems to be, you know, something that happened in between then and now, which uh, makes more of a, makes more sense to look at the what's happening with the dollar and why it go, you know, why is it moving the way it is? And I think that's really the the point is that nobody seems to know why the dollar does what it does. Everybody has their own theory and everybody has their own shorthanded myth, but nobody ever says, hey, the dollar goes up because this is what's going on. It's always, oh, the U.S. economy is strong, or as Mr. Sharma says, oh, it's the euro. The euro's, there's, of course, the dollar's going up because there's so much problems in euro, in Europe with the euro. And then Chinese renminbi is falling because the Chinese want it to fall. It's to manage currency. There's always some excuse. And it's never the dollar's going up because there's problems that the dollar is reflecting. As you probably noticed, finding alpha is already harder than ever. Consumer prices, recession, on and on and on. So where can you turn? Experts are flocking to alternative assets to protect their portfolios from so much instability. And one alternative is rapidly gaining traction. That alternative has more than doubled the appreciation of the S&P 500 over the last 25 years, while also demonstrating very low correlation to the typical investments of stocks and bonds. This alternative asset also tends to spike in value. The only problem is, unless you're an insider or a billionaire, it's been impossible to access. And I'm talking about fine art here. And Masterworks, which is today's sponsor, has used tech and finance to disrupt this market, opening it up to investors across the world. Masterworks has a proprietary data set on the art world, one that is so extensive that they select less than 3,000 of the paintings they're offered, looking for those with the highest appreciation potential. Then Masterworks acquires the paintings, breaking it up into shares for you to invest so that you can diversify with art that fits into your budget. And you can further diversify among artists and different paintings and different styles too. Through 2022's turbulent marketplace, Masterworks is still generating consistent returns. In fact, check them out, go to their website, look at all the information. To date, Masterworks has sold five paintings with an average net return of 26.8% to investors. So with stocks and bonds and everything down this year, 
Masterworks is in very high demand right now as people are looking to diversify. So there's a waiting list. But because they're sponsoring our show, a special offer to our audience, you can skip the line by just clicking the link in the description to get priority access. Check out Masterworks at the links below. Steve, it's always somebody, some other explanation. We can't possibly say that we are helpless corks bobbing in this monetary system that's got a mind of its own and currents of its own. Steve, the dollar, however you measure it, maybe the DXY index or the broad trade weighted index that the Federal Reserve puts out near highs last seen in the panic of 2020. And I would say really pretty much only the mid 1980s were the only higher period, I believe, where we are right now. That's very strange. What do people what do people think about this? What, what do you what does it matter to them? Yeah, it's it's interesting because I I mean because I want to push back at Jeff a little bit. He, he says that we don't know why, but it's so obvious. I've read I I cannot tell you how many articles I have read, and perhaps even heard this from somebody on the Federal Open Market Committee that the Fed is in control of the dollar. That when they raise rates, dollar goes up. So it should be absolutely very obvious to anyone right now that, hey, the Fed's raising rates. The dollar has to go higher. The Fed's going to quit at some point and maybe capitulate, and that will bring the dollar down. I mean, that, that's right, isn't it, Jeff? <laughs> that's what everybody says. In fact, I'm going through this in our Money Mysticism series on the member section where we revisit and dissect this very myth, the idea that, okay, somehow the Fed some way controls it. Usually it's interest rate differentials or just interest rate policy alone. Sometimes there's jawboning, sometimes there's sentiment, all these other excuses that are made for. It has to be the Fed. When you actually examine the evidence, it doesn't stand even the slightest little bit of scrutiny. I mean, just think about a couple of years ago, for example, 2017, what was happening? The dollar was falling and everybody said, oh, the dollar's crashing. Here it comes. The dollar's going down. And what was the Fed doing? They were raising rates. They were doing quantitative tightening, the exact opposite of what you would expect. And then here's the thing. In 2018, what happened? The dollar did a 180 degree U-turn, but the Fed did not. The Fed did all the same things that they were doing in 2017, but the dollar turned around the exact opposite way and went the other direction for reasons that nobody identified other than Urjit Patel from the Reserve Bank of India. But even then, he, he identified the symptoms without getting the cause right. So, you know, and you can go back any time period, the dollars ups and downs, they do not correlate the Federal Reserve policy. Maybe there are some short run instances or short run periods where the Fed can influence traders on a day to day basis or a short run basis. But by and large, the dollar's general direction is not determined by monetary policy at the Federal Reserve because it's not monetary policy. Right. It's determined by the global economy. And that that's the thing that I think maybe for Americans, it's harder to understand because we live in a dollar world. And when you're outside of America, you have multiple currencies you live in and work with. So, you know, one of the things that I, I find challenging is for people to step back and say, look, why is the dollar going higher? Is it because of the Fed or something that China is doing? Or is it perhaps just traditional supply and demand issues where maybe just maybe there's not enough dollars? But that doesn't make any sense to people because. Well, didn't the Fed print trillions and trillions of dollars? There's got to be so many of these things. It doesn't add up, but it does. Here's what the future holds, according to Mr. Sharma. Even as U.S. stocks fell in the dot-com bust two decades ago, the dollar continued rising, 
before entering a decline that started in 2002 and lasted six years, a similar turning point may be near, and this time, the U.S. currency's decline could last even longer. And then he offers three fundamental imbalances. Eternity, right? I mean, that's what we're getting to. The U.S. is in a terminal decline, except it never happens, right, Emil? We hear this all the time. It's year after year. I mean, we've been hearing it ever since the first quantitative easing back in 2009, is that they're going to destroy the dollar. The dollar's going to go away. There's all these other alternatives. Um, The Chinese, the Russians, everybody are making plans to destroy the dollar world. They hate dollar hegemony. They want to take out the, you know, the American source of what everybody says is the American source of strength. But again, getting back to what we just said and what you just said, Emil, which is why did the dollar fall between 2001 and 2000? Actually, in March 19 or March 18th or March 19th, 2008 was when the DXY hit its low, which to me is significant because what was the day in March that day in March represent? That was the day Bear Stearns failed. That was the day the global financial crisis became an irredeemable crisis. And if you look at it, as Steve was saying, in terms of supplies of dollars, that was the day the supplies of dollars in registered across most of the dollar world. So in the early financial crisis, you had, you know, bits and pieces, bad things going wrong. But that was the day in March of 2008 when it all came together in the worst kind of way. And suddenly the supply of dollars globally just dried up. And so if we look at the falling dollar in the middle 2000s period, as Steve said, as a matter of supply, in that case, oversupply, I mean, we know it was an oversupply of money because we had credit bubbles in the U.S., we had credit bubbles in Europe, we had emerging market corporate debt bubbles everywhere, we had massive financial monetary creation. So of course, the dollar's exchange value fell during the middle 2000 period. So if we're going to repeat that period going ahead, then we need an oversupply of dollars, which I know people are already saying, well, we've got that. What what do you think happened over the last couple of years? And that's really the issue here. Believe it or not, Mr. Sharma doesn't mention any of that, but he does offer three (laughs) reasons, three reasons why the dollar's fundamental imbalances bode very ill for its future value. Reason number one, and you guys react, when a current account deficit runs persistently above 5% of gross domestic product, It is a reliable signal of financial trouble to come. That is most true in developed countries where these episodes are rare and concentrated in crisis-prone nations such as Spain, Portugal, and Ireland. The U.S. current account deficit is now close to that 5% threshold, which it has broken only once since 1960. That was during the dollar's downswing after 2001. Current account deficit, too much. We're buying too many things, mostly from China. Therefore, dollar devalues. True? No, not true. I mean, it's true for other currencies around the world who have to connect to the U.S. dollar system, but it's not true for the U.S. dollar itself because the euro dollar supplies the money. It's not like we have too much currency leaving the U.S. going outside the United States to pay for all these excessive imports. That's not how it works. The dollars are created outside the U.S., and so they flow into the U.S. in some ways, which is what shows up at the current account deficit. So it's not a matter of the current account deficit determining our monetary sufficiency. That's just a reflection of whatever comes in from the outside the U.S. Amazing, Jeff. A lot of people don't think of that. They think of it as a pull system, demand pulling in the goods, therefore the deficit. You come at it from a completely different point of view, 
than Michael Pettis does, but he comes to the exact same conclusion and makes that point all the time. It's a push system from the outside that determines the current account deficit in the U.S. Well, yeah, that's the key, right? I mean, Steve, you know, it's that, you know, we look at the euro dollar system and it's understandable why people don't understand this because we're taught to think of things in national terms, right? This is the U.S. dollar. It's the American currency. We look at the at even the global economy from the perspective inside the United States. You have to extract your viewpoint and yourself, your whole worldview from that viewpoint and look at it as a global currency system in which the U.S. is only a part of it. And so it's not like the U.S. is it's an independent island. It's one part of the overall worldwide system. And therefore, you look at it from that perspective and things look very, very different. Right. And, and I think that's exactly the point, Jeff. And, and you, you made it as, as and I think Americans see the dollar as this closed system. I mean, that's just how they view it. And it's yeah. not. I mean, th- th- this is one of the biggest challenges. You have to understand that a global reserve currency, the money has to cycle. It doesn't matter if it's dollars, crypto, gold, fill in the blank. It can be anything you want. But the money has to be cycling through the global economy. If the U.S. doesn't run a deficit, it doesn't actually work. And that's the beauty. Everyone's like, oh, wait, this deficit is so horrible. Actually, no. It's, look, I get it. It doesn't make sense. You know, run a budget deficit. It shouldn't happen. But in terms of global dollar you know, reserves being a currency, it has to do this. That has to cycle. And then when it does, the global, lo and behold, the global economy expands. And the dollar falls, right? That's the correlation that, I mean, that when the dollar goes down, that means we know that means that there's dollars outside the U.S. And what happens? What was 2017? 2017 was globally synchronized growth. And then all of a sudden it disappeared. You get into 2018 and 2019, we have a globally synchronized downturn as the dollar is going up. You know, 2020, COVID lockdowns, economy shutdowns. There's nothing flowing anywhere. The dollar surges in exchange value just as it had in 2008. When there's no dollars, it goes up in value. The economy doesn't do well. So we want the dollar going down in value because not because we want the dollar to go down in value because of what that represents. And I think that's where everybody goes wrong. And certainly this article in the Financial Times and everybody else that screams about the dollar going to zero don't realize that what it actually represents is the opposite of what they say. Some of the reason the dollar is going up, and I think a lot of people don't understand this, is why is there such a demand for dollars? And when the general view is who wants these things anyways, yeah. is you have to understand that in the global economy outside the U.S., there's a lot of dollar denominated debt. And so when the economy is expanding and new dollars are created, it's not an issue to pay on your debt. But when the economy is shrinking or even just stagnant, well, you still have that debt load. You still need dollars. And what happens? You need them and you're willing to pay more to get them because you don't have a ready access because the economy is not functioning right. You know, people think of it in terms of store of value, too. They're looking at the dollar as a store of value when it's not. The euro dollar is a medium of exchange. And so you're not using, you're not looking necessarily to use dollars as, a, as somebody outside the, the dollar system using their own currency. They're using, they're not looking at to, the dollar to store money or to store wealth. They're using it as a medium of exchange to participate in the global financial system, in the global economic system. Now, yes, I know that, you know, some reserve managers, in fact, most reserve managers do hold liquid balances in U.S. treasuries, you know, as Steve, as you said before on, on the show, thinking about that as a savings account, but that's not really because they're looking to store value. That's sort of a liquidity measure or liquidity insurance as a medium of exchange. So again, you have to reorient your focus away from 
specifically or particularly or exclusively thinking about dollars as a store of value and to start thinking about it more as a medium of exchange. And if you want to get on the road that is global commerce, global financial flows, you got to have the U.S. dollars to pay the freight, to pay the tolls. Steve, a moment ago, you mentioned debt, and that's exactly where Sharma goes next, is reason number two why the dollar is due for destruction. Well, I exaggerate. He didn't say destruction, but is in trouble. Quote, nations see their currencies weaken when the rest of the world no longer trusts that they can pay their bills. The U.S. currently owes the world a net $18 trillion, or 73% of U.S. GDP, far beyond the 50% threshold that often foretold past currency crises. I'm going to take the opportunity to respond to him there because I just happen to have the BIS listing here of all the countries in their uh, general government debt as a percentage of GDP. And indeed, the United States is 10th on the list, top 10. That's not where you want to be at 122%. So perhaps it's a different measure that he's looking at that the BIS but let me read the first 15 countries here and just think about which countries are in a currency crisis and which ones are not. All right. So Japan, Greece, Italy, Singapore, Portugal, Spain, France, Belgium, United Kingdom, United States. They all have the most general government debt relative to GDP. Canada's number 11, then Austria. And then look at the last three, Brazil, India, and Argentina. So you got 12 countries who are advanced economy money centers, euros, francs, and then you have three countries that are emerging markets. And those are the countries that are having the currency crisis, not the other ones. So it's, there's no correlation here between too much government debt and currency crisis. By the way, the lowest amount of government debt relative to uh, GDP, Russia, not too good. <laughs> Not too far off, Turkey. Hey, but the ruble is very strong lately, so I mean. Well, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> well, that's just because nobody uses this. <laughs> the thing is dried up. But, so, you know. yeah, go on, go you guys. If you want to jump in, if not, I've got more BIS statistics, which will be great for ratings. No, and I think you know Steve's point that he just made a little bit earlier is, I think, uh, relevant and germane here. Is that look. Because of the euro dollar system, because the U.S. dollar is the, the euro dollar is a global reserve currency that disconnects the credit characteristics of U.S. government debt from its use in the monetary system or its, its applicability to the euro dollar system. People who are using dollars don't care that the U.S. government is broke. In fact, as we know from, you know, just repo and collateral insufficiency, the broker the government gets, the better it is for the monetary system. So it's not about how broke they are. It's about how this the monetary system actually recycles dollar and re, not, not just recycles, but really redistributes dollar resources around the rest of the world. So the level of government debt, you can't think about it in the ways that you might have way back during the fixed exchange era of Bretton Woods, where, you know, if you had too much government debt, too much of a fiscal deficit, you were in danger of breaking the peg of your currency to everybody else's currency. That's just... It's an outdated way to think about this stuff. And really, that's what we're talking about. This whole article and this whole viewpoint is an outdated, outmoded way of thinking about global currencies and global monetary flows. Well, and if we add on to that, right, we could say, OK, if this is true, that there's too much debt, then what should we see that people are rejecting 
the fact that there's too much U.S. debt and they don't want it. But what, in fact, do we actually see? Well, we are not too well, that's coming, Steve, If you know that, right. I mean, because that's that's the parallel argument, right? The dollar's going to crash and the treasury market's going to explode. And these things are they're going to happen. Right. And what did we talk about on a prior show? The tick data. And what did you say? Oh, there's a huge demand from foreigners who want our debt. In fact, there's not enough. And what do we see in the front end of the treasury yield curve? You know, with four week bills, not enough of them. So actually, as bizarre as it sounds to anyone listening, we don't have enough debt and we don't have enough of the right debt. (laughs) Two more points from me. This one, people may say, well, don't look at just general government debt. Look at government debt and private debt and add that together well leading the the league here is hong kong get this 444 percent to gdp it's an advanced economy money center so not all of their debt that's in that country belongs to them that's fair enough but not too far behind japan at 420 percent but listen to these countries there's only one country on this list that doesn't have a currency that people would like to have they wouldn't mind having right hong kong japan that one's fixed japan luxembourg that's the euro singapore advanced economy money center france canada greece part of the euro belgium portugal sweden that that's a highly well relatively well-traded currency netherlands switzerland spain italy united kingdom they all have tremendous amount of debt the only country on this list in the first 20 including Norway, Denmark, the U.S., and Korea, is China, where people would blanch. Now let me read the countries that have the least amount of debt, private and government debt. Mexico, Indonesia, Argentina, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Russia. There's no connection. Last point. Well, I think there's a connection there that nobody wants to invest in those countries, right? Because they are represented massive Inverted. Yes. Uh, Opposite connection. It's an inverse correlate. It's absolutely inverse. The more usable your currency, it makes sense. The more you're going to have debt in that country because people are using your <laughs> currency. Exactly. That's why I think when you think about these things in the right order, put the cart instead of putting the cart before the horse, put the horse before the cart. You know, you start seeing these things correctly. Last point: It's private debt that leads to financial crises possibly currency crisis, not so much public ones, at least in advanced economy money centers. And guess what? The United States is doing pretty well. It comes in only 23rd out of the list of countries that have a ton of private debt. So the U.S. is somewhat deleveraged on the public sector, sure. But as we've been talking about, the public sector debt is important for collateral purposes. Here's the third and final reasons, ladies and gentlemen. Finally, investors tend to move away from the dollar when the U.S. economy is slowing relative to the rest of the world. In recent years, the U.S. has been growing significantly faster than the median rate of other developed economies, but it is poised to grow slower than its peers in coming years. I guess. Uh, mm. So that's the old strong dollar argument that uh, when the dollar, when the U.S. economy is great, the dollar goes up because it's a reflection of the U.S. being the cleanest, dirty shirt or the just doing really well relative to everybody else, which, again, you don't see that correlation anywhere. It's, it's one of those. It's just a shorthand that we all say because everybody says it. But is it actually true? Is there actually a case where. When the U.S. dollar is going up, it represents the U.S. being in really good shape. Would anybody really think that the U.S. is in great shape right now? 
because the U.S. dollar exchange value is up against pretty much everybody. And I don't think anybody would say the U.S. economy is in that much better of a shape than everybody else around the world. Right. Yeah. And everyone else's economy is in lousy shape. I don't see why the U.S. should be doing any worse than anyone else. I think that both Britain and the U.K. have a lot going for them. Should uh, should the people in charge ever figure out that we've got all the demand in the global economy? And should we try to change the way the monetary order works? I think we hold the best cards. Last last thing before we leave prediction time. What happened two decades ago suggests the dollar is closer to peaking than rallying further. I say it will. The balance of probabilities is that the monetary system is looking very weak. Rates of growth will be slowing for the, I would say, next several quarters, three, four quarters, the outlook I see. And therefore, the balance of probability is that the dollar will be rising relative to other currencies. Jeff, precise numbers, two decimal points. Where will the DXY be in I, at yeah. any point? No, <laughs> no chance. But yeah, I think you're right, Emil. The caveat is, I think the article, I'm going to actually agree with the article here. With the one caveat, if we have monetary system, the monetary system do what it did in the early 2000s, which was get past the Asian financial crisis, that little air pocket of monetary and euro dollar insufficiency and start generating uh, euro dollars around the rest of the world, it will be like 2001 again and the dollar will start to go down. But what what is the chances of that? What are the chances that are actually happening? At some point, we would expect like we have intermittently over the last 15 years that uh, probably once we get through whatever it is we're about to go through here in 2022 and 2023, at some point the dollar will go down again. It's not going to crash. There'll be a reflationary cycle. Um, we'll have another 2017 where it'll reverse and everybody say, oh, here comes the crash. And everybody will talk about the petrol one and, you know, oh, China's doing bilateral trade with this country or that country, which they've been doing for the last decade. And it doesn't make a difference because the ups and downs in the dollar have little to do with politics. In fact, they have very little to do with politics and they have everything to do with banks. And so, so long as the banking system is saying we're not in any position, whether willing or able to supply dollars, it's going to go up in value. And the moment they say, OK, we're a little bit more ready to take on risk, the dollar will start to go down in value. It's not going to crash because guess what? Tina is still the one we're all dating. I told you that in confidence, Jeff. Now you're <laughs> going to get me in trouble when this goes live. Steve. Emil, I just got a text message here um, from Jeff. He didn't want to on air say his prediction, so I have it for you. Um, he said, of, quote, the dollar is going to go significantly higher, probably break out to hitting 120. And you and you kind of think about why this is. The global economy is slowing, but we still have all this debt that has to be serviced. Demand for dollars. If it hits 120 and breaks from there, well, man, watch out. Deflation's coming and bad things are happening. This, this is not what people want. You know, I like to tell people it's like Goldilocks and the three bears with the dollars. You want your dollar to be just right. Not too high, not too low, but just right. Well, the problem is it's high and probably going higher. 